Oliver, good morning. It's good to be back. Good morning, Ante. I'm looking outside of the window and seeing this beautiful winter scenery with snow covering the gardens and the trees and a beautiful blue sky. It's quite chilly out there, but it's exciting. It's very romantic to look outside. Uh, How about you? Uh, very good, very good. It's good to have some sun, definitely. We didn't have a lot of sun in the last couple of weeks, so I really appreciate this. Do you have your drink with you? Yes. So what are we drinking Absolutely. this morning? What are we drinking? Um, I'm drinking again my ginger turmeric herbal tea. Oh, wonderful. And I have it in my Biomac, the one that I'm having since I'm, I think, 12 years old. Oh, fantastic. I have a St. John's Wort tea. I think in German it's called Johanniskraut tea. And it is actually, yes. you know, the tiny uh, yellow leaves. And we pick those in my mother-in-law's garden. So this is very potent, very nice. And you see what my cup says? Uh, I think I understand Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I don't know, I got this at some point, but it's it's good to be back, you know. I'm living for these moments, not just when we are recording, but also in post-production, listening to you and everything that you've said a couple of times. It is really great. And one thing that came to my attention, and this was just a couple of days after we recorded, I stumbled upon an interview with Amos Oz, he died in 2018, interview in which he was asked whether he could define the essence of Jewish identity. And this is what he answered. Well, I don't know if interpretations can change the world. I cannot prove it. But I presented this interpretation in ways of seduction. I want to try to seduce people into seeing things different, totally differently than what they were told when they were little children or what they were taught at school. Try to view the same story through a different perspective. I encourage my reader to be a little detective and ask herself or himself, maybe there is a better explanation to the motives of these diabolical Jews. Maybe I will even bring my reader to ask himself or herself some questions about themselves, not just about the Bible, not just about Jerusalem, not just about the crucifixion or the most famous kiss in history, but about themselves. Mm. Well, if I have to put it in a nutshell, I would say that ours is a civilization of doubt and argument. Ask difficult questions. Never take anything for granted. It's not for nothing that the Jews never had a Pope, nor could they have a Pope. If anyone ever calls himself or maybe herself the Pope of the Jews, every Jew will approach this Pope and say, listen to me five minutes, I will tell you once and for all, what is it that God really wants of us? I know better. It is a certain anarchistic gene, spiritual anarchistic, which I think accompanies the Jews for thousands of years. No wonder that many, many great Jews in history, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, Freud, and Kafka, and Spinoza, and Karl Marx, and Einstein, they have one thing in common in their biographies, a teenage rebellion against a very powerful father figure. I think this, to some extent, it's not a comprehensive explanation, but this is the secret of the stubborn longevity of the Jewish civilization. Asking questions, never take anything for granted. So, Oliver, I think you also had the opportunity to listen to this clip. So, what do you think what he says there? 
Oh yeah, I listened to it uh, yesterday night when you shared with me and I fell in love with it. I mean, particularly the way how it describes the the Old Testament impetus and how it affected also some of the great Jewish intellectuals with uh, with their attempt to overcome their huge father figure and having this anarchistic type of vibe to them. I think much of that is found in the, in the Old Testament, this critical perspective on rulership, this critical perspective on religion, on priests. Definitely, I mean, the father figure is a huge thing in the, in the Old Testament where you have to uh, kind of find a father, overcome your father and become a better father uh, or find in God a father who, who finally somehow evens the waves uh, of aggression that perhaps in your son father relationship uh, have become so so disturbing uh, particularly the pharaoh figure right the the ultra father the the uber father um how he is in the beginning kind of the one who who saves you the the one who protects you the one who cares for you but at a certain moment this becomes oppressive and and you need to find your own identity actually you need to to define yourself away from that father figure in order to become who you actually are that's great you're already hinting towards what our discussion is going to be but i will at some point in our future episodes, I will be very much interested to talk to you about interpretation, not just hermeneutics when it comes to text, but generally about life. And the reason for that is because the impetus for that question in the interview concerned his book on Judas, where he is providing a rereading of Judas with the hope that that rereading might discover something about us. So at some point, I would like to talk to you in the future about the relationship between these creative interpretations, which are sometimes coming from the perspective of interesting questions, and sometimes they come from what people are calling identity locations or socio-historical locations. How much do they reveal? How much do they obscure? How can we go about them? What are the limits of interpretation? So that is something that I would like to explore sometimes in the future. But today I would like to think about what you mentioned already a little bit, and this is the issue of identity. And in order to bring this forward, I would like to share with our listeners something that you posted on your Facebook page a couple of days after we recorded our first episode. And this is what you write. Living now more than eight years in the Midwest, I have learned to appreciate its landscape, its farming culture, its people, but was never able to arrive spiritually. I miss my fellow believers from the old continent, their prayers, meditations, their language games, and singing. I miss the open-minded, honest, creative, experimental, existential conversations growing on the soil of a secular, agnostic, post-colonial, disillusioned culture. Biblical thinking is often easier when people are no longer dogmatic about their beliefs and have applied a good dosage of religious critique to their own faith tradition, faith community, and beliefs. It's only for people like Ante Roncic that my homesickness was softened and the deep-felt spiritual loneliness for both you and your wife did not grow into the unmanageable spheres of nostalgia. So before I ask you some questions about identity and the issues of identity that emerge from that quote, I was really interested and touched by what you say here when you say that you were never able to arrive spiritually. Now, you are a professor, right? You are teaching religion. You are in the Mecca of what is referred to the Mecca of of Adventism. We have the Adventist University, one of the most famous churches and many other churches in the area. How can you be in Berrien Springs and not arrive spiritually? That's a very good question, Ante. But I'm thinking you probably answered, we might answer it in a 
in a somewhat similar way, if I were to ask you, you know, it was, uh, I think a week ago, two weeks ago, we had this 10 days of prayer in our church. We would meet together in the evenings and, and pray about matters that are important to our community of faith. And, um, so I participated in one of these prayer meetings and this, the same question was asked by a colleague of us, um, the MDF program director, uh, Fernando Ortiz, uh, how it is possible that I'm feeling lonely if I have finally arrived, you know, away from this agnostic, atheistic culture. And so, and I think the experiences of loneliness is generated by a lack of a communication partner who is able to activize the self. So I am somebody who has answers, who has questions, uh, who has ideas, who has doubts, who has experiences, and, and so on. And there are some people who can activate uh, the, this type of inner core, and, and some cannot. And I think this is the experience I'm trying to refer to uh, when I'm Looking back at my life here in in the Midwest, I, I feel like that the the people who have been raised and lived here in this environment, they are somehow I'm not able to activate them perhaps, and and they are not able to activate uh, me. We, we we kind of end up in misunderstandings, even though you know we subscribe to very similar beliefs, uh, we we pray to the same same God, we sing the same songs. Those songs trigger something different in me, and and some Bible verses trigger something different in me, even though I would subscribe to the same doctrines. You know, I think that's a very deep sense of loneliness that I think spirituality is trying to to satisfy or are trying to answer to to fill up uh, this this void of of meaninglessness. Uh, and I'm not able to to in the spiritual offers that are are being presented here. I'm not I'm not able to find a way to fill that void. What what you're saying, Oliver, it really reminds me of something. A good friend of ours. You know him, Andrew Tompkins. He is our colleague in the seminary and he is teaching in the missions department. Him and I are about to embark on reading a book together by the German sociologist Hartmut Rosa, who wrote this great book about resonance, right? He says about how much we have learned lost in modernity because of the acceleration, the sense of disenchantment, instrumentalization that we are experiencing of everything that is commodification. And then he's providing a sociology of resonance, which is a sociology of connectedness with the world, with ourselves, with friends, and all of this. And it seems to me that what you're describing, in some sense, is the absence of resonance. It's not the absence of belief, it's not the absence of religious culture, but in some way, some frequencies at least, that used to be activated before, are not there anymore. It's not that you're not being fed, it's not that you're not getting things. But some of these elements that you had before, these connections, these resonances that you had before, you don't have them. And now you feel kind of a sense of, of loss. Would that be a good way to describe that? Yeah, that's that's a very good description. You know, last week I've worked together with a plumber for a couple of, of days, um, an agnostic uh, person, I think, to most of what he would describe himself. And this person uh, really activated me, my spirituality. Uh, you know, there, there is an agnostic person who is doubting the existence of God, or at least playing with the possibility that he might not exist and l listening to hard rock music and pop and um, being in a complicated life situation. And we, we talked quite intimately about his life and my life. And I felt like brotherhood. I felt like now the spirit of god is present now we are connected now i want to pray with you in fact uh, he, he just yesterday he just went to surgery and i uh, we, we're still in contact with each other and texting him said hey brother i'm, I'm praying for you and he, he gratefully um responded and said well uh, you know prayers were, were answered even though he's an agnostic that that's kind of where i feel the resonance where where we both be are aware or there's a, a strong awareness of 
that life is very complicated, that there are not simple answers, that it's not too difficult to step into the into the sphere of agnosticism or atheism, even if you're a devout Christian. And this type of experience I'm, I'm lacking in, in some of my brothers and sisters, which is fine for them, which is, it, it just leaves a void in me. Yeah, I think it's also important that when you say this, that the listeners have a proper context for your words, because you are not in my, in the way I see you, you're not a rootless intellectual. You're not a person who is on the way out of religion and Christianity. You're not a liberal theologian. And we, both of us, we have friends like this for whom religion is kind of just one way of expressing the self. You are deeply committed to scripture, to the community you live in. So you're writing not from the position of a disenchanted, semi-agnostic. You're writing from, not writing, you're talking is the right way to put it. Well, you're writing in this post, but you're talking from a position of someone who is committed and it is this what you're saying why i feel what you're saying why i feel so deeply connected to you oliver because you are the one who will understand uh, when i make a statement that reading nietzsche has actually made me a better christian when i was used to teach nietzsche quite a bit this quintessential anti-god god is dead philosopher he activated my my faith because it is in the anguish of his utter rejection and despising of the Christian faith, that I would fully understand the radical nature of what Christianity is. He is the reverberation of, the, as this is David uh, Bentley Hart writes, the reverberation of the paganism that was displaced by Christianity in the second and third century in the Roman Empire. And you can see everything. And he is a critic worthy of the Christian faith. So when I read him, I almost feel the preciousness of my faith. And is this one way to interpret the sentence when you say that biblical thinking is often easier when people are not longer dogmatic, but they're raising kind of these questions from an agnostic position? Is this something that you have in mind when you write this? Yes, I, I have things like that in mind. I mean, when, when I think about Jacques Derrida or Jean-Paul Sartre or Nietzsche, uh, they, they, they really are there in order to deconstruct some of the experiences of life and the assumptions and the projections and the cruelties and that, that are embedded in some of the interpretations of religious texts and, and, and others, also, also Karl Marx. And they are so dear to my heart when you read them in their context. You hear also the sound, not just of a, uh, de- the, the need of a deconstruction of religion, but also you hear the sound, the longing of creating a better world. And I think these melodies I hear when I'm reading the Old Testament texts too. I mean, it's not, I think it's not by accident that many of these critics are themselves deeply embedded in the Judeo-Christian tradition and that much of their language is actually biblical. Of course, we would not, you nor, nor I would subscribe to, to their methods of improving the world uh, necessarily, uh, you know, but the sense by which they feel the world, by which they feel religion, by which they feel uh, culture is, is something that I'm missing in the religious context here. And I think it's so much part of the uh, necessary religious experience to, at least for me, to get exposed to these critical voices because they're so prophetic in a sense too. Yeah. And I don't know if you would, Oliver, that this is very nicely put and I just want to piggyback on what you said. For me, very often the issue is not to change. I'm an Orthodox Christian. I believe Orthodox things, right? It is for me the realization that, this is such a bad way of of putting it, but I almost wanted to say that there's this will to power element and this is too Nietzschean, but I wanted to say that religion is this very live thing that always seeks to realize itself, not, not change, not abandon the fundamentals, but finding new language, new associations, new expressions. 
new genres, poetry, art, music. You know, sometimes I share this with my class uh, the other day, that sometimes when I don't find a way into the Bible, I just need to put some musical piece. I very much like Rachmaninoff's Vespers. And there's this Nunc Dimittis, famous, beautiful piece, for me the most beautiful thing, you know, I, the, the, the choir goes, the bass go down, goes down at the end towards the B flat. It's just an amazing piece. And it is this, you know, let now your servant depart in peace, you know, because I've seen, you know, the glory of the Lord. And sometimes it is music. It's nothing new, but it's a new way of expressing. And when fear of newness and fear of creativity and fear of language, where you have people who identify heresy with a certain usage of certain terminology that constricts what religion is supposed to be this living budding developing thing that always seeks the essence always seeks to be expressed and put in new sort of wineskins mm-hmm. as it were i don't know that's one way how i think about this yeah. tension so i mean you're bringing this up as an approach to discuss the self right i mean you're saying Uh, the self does have to do with continuity and discontinuities religion always trying to new find new vessels to make a life again that continuity um can can you explain a little bit particular with the question of continuity discontinuity how they play together is discontinuity discontinuity a threat to the self and to the identity um do we need more continuity do do we more need more tradition do we need more conservation so, so to say of of ourself in order to protect ourselves because that's something i've i'm experiencing particularly here in the midwest midwest quite a bit like i think two weeks ago so there was a huge conference on religious liberty and it's kind of this anti-vaxxer covid uh, anti-critical race theory type of thing and, and i sensed much of of that aggression against it had to do with the fear of the self getting compromised because of continuity because of discontinuities because of of change so so how how do you how do you see this and how far does continuity and discontinuity um bring life to the self or actually threaten it well let me return the volley right back to you right and ask you that based on the quote that you provided on here on facebook the post that you have I mean, obviously, you're writing yourself about continuity and discontinuity. So I'm wondering, how did you experience it? Perhaps if you can speak to that, and then I will answer your question as well. I'm not dodging it. And then perhaps before we even go into this, if we can provide just for the two of us even, and then for the listeners, some terms of reference, like how are we using the language of identity? How are you using the language of identity? And how are you using the language of self? Because they seem to be overlapping in different. So perhaps continuity and discontinuity in the quote you provided in moving here and then how are you using those terms in the first place identity and self um i think kind of as a quick response uh, i think i would need more time to kind of architecture this uh, or conceptualize a response to such a big question but i think part of it is actually that this the continued discontinuity that I've experienced in, for example, Amsterdam. So when, when you come together, imagine for, for the listeners, you know, every Friday we would come together as uh, young adults. Uh, several of them are our students at, at the university doing PhDs or masters or, or so on. We have a cab driver. We have a drug addict. We have a couple of agnostic people uh, with us. Uh, we are a group of perhaps 15 people of all kinds of experiences of life who all take a different type of attitude towards life. But what we all have in common is an awareness of um 
we are all in this big storm of life and there are no simple answers. And so we come together as partners and brothers to figure out, um, you know, what type of answers would work better, what type of shifts in thinking, what type of shifts in behavior would, would help us to have a, have a more smooth ride on this rough sea. Um, we sing together, we pray together, even if not everybody believes in God, everybody wants to imagine that there could be something like that. Uh, so uh, you could say the experience uh, that, that I had for a, uh, for, for a couple of years um, uh, was a constant exploration of what are the issues, what are potential answers. Um, and in this answer finding, there's a lot of discontinuity, but it is this continued search for whether discontinuities actually could improve life and could could help us settle a little, a little bit more that i would say made to a great extent my myself built myself and i would even say until today i'm still kind of in this mode i'm just missing more partners so uh, obviously you're one of of the great partners but this constant probing and testing as inviting discontinuities in order for the self to continue a meaningful life so wonderful. I think you've already, I think in many ways, by giving your story and background, I think you started to slowly unpack what you mean by identity. So for you, identity certainly has this element of flux. But Oliver, as you know, identity etymologically is connected to the word idem, which means the same. So identity means sameness. So I think your flux, your changing experiences and your growth, they only make sense if they have some sort of common denominator to them so what is when i talk about oliver oliver glance like what okay there's all these changes all of these stimulations but where is the sameness element to this entity called oliver yeah yeah um i mean if i'm thinking uh as a help for for references of uh, of of identifying terms um william james he has kind of this uh, I, I think he introduces into the world of psychology the idea of self-concept and self-awareness and, and, and self-esteem. Um, and, and self-concept for him would be the, the repository of memories and experiences, everything that you can say, who you are, what, what you have, what you believe in, and, and so on. So that, that w- would be for him the self-concept. And I think it's important or helpful to differentiate between the self and the self-concept. So I think for me in the concept uh, there is much more flux, but the self itself um, has has sameness. Um, so to me, um, the the metaphor might might not be working uh, very well for for the different parts of this discussion. But um, I like to envision it as as a computer. You know, a computer has has hardware and has an operating system, and we we all kind of the self has this hardware. Uh, part to it. Um, think think about hormones, for example. Uh, uh, testosterone does something different to a body than estrogen does. So, uh, I mean, testosterone makes you uh, makes you often more disagreeable, ma- makes you uh, often more competitive, makes you, of course, also have a higher sex drive. But at the same time, it also triggers in man protective behavior. So, um, uh, you see that with uh, with apes. You see you see that in other animals as well and you see that with human beings if um if somebody has a higher level of testosterone he's usually more aggressive but at the same time also more willing to protect the things that are of much value to him so so you have kind of this hardware this biological um aspect to it and then you have an operating system aspect to it um it's kind of the 
the, the logic by which you live and, and drive. But, and now comes, I think for me, the metaphor, um, the metaphorical application that is helpful for this discussion. Within the operating system, you can actually run different virtual machines. I'm sometimes programming stuff for, for research, uh, doing linguistic research of, of big data. And uh, so I run, for example, a Linux virtual machine within my operating system. And I have the virtual machine go to full screen. And at a certain moment, you are unaware that actually you're running operating system within another operating system. And so it's a full experience of another world, so to say, only at the moment where I become aware again that myself is different to that virtual machine. So I would say there's a difference between self and, and concept of the self. And the self, I have the sameness, and you could probably articulate that much better, but uh, you can experiment. The self can experiment constantly about envisioning and, and revisioning itself in new ways uh, without necessarily destroying the inner core of sameness of, of the self. What, what do you think? Where am I going? Where am I going in the wrong direction? Here? I don't think it's the wrong direction. I think it's rightly put. I think as we, we are struggling with language and people will define these things in different ways. I mean, you have noticed, I'm sure, in popular discourse and uh, language, people very often are using identity and self in a synonymous uh, way. And I do believe that certainly if you think about the self and identity as a Venn diagram, there certainly there is this overlapping space where what we mean by personal identity and what we mean by the self is kind of one and the same thing. But you're right. However, we are using that language. We are talking about some permanent features and less permanent features. For instance, when I use the language self... In some aspects, I talk about the self in a way that I would not describe this as identity. For me, identity is what the self is, how the self is being expressed and how the self is being shaped. But like you, I like to think about self as having some, both certain capacities, right? And many people have descri uh, described these capacities. Uh, Christian Smith writes about these many capacities that we have, you know, practical consciousness, mental representation, assigning causal attributions, self-reflexivity, anticipating the future. These are all these kind of capacities that we have by virtue of being human. And the way they're being realized, of course, then intersubjectivity and love, those are the higher order capacities. They are being then realized and being shaped by the environment and by our own actions. So I think however we describe the terminology, we're talking about something that is a certain kind of givenness. Right? And something that is mm -hmm. there by virtue of who we are, by virtue of our gender, by of DNA, by virtue of the also environment in which we are born. So however, we define this. Would you say when you talk about your analogy about software and hardware, are your fundamental beliefs your hardware or your software? I think it's part of the self that uh, you you cannot identify that uh, at least not not easily. I think. Uh, you know, when, when, when I, when I look at this, this question is, is it, uh, you could say it's a scientific question in, in a sense. Uh, I mean, it's a philosophical question, but it, it, the way how it's asked, um, is op uh, perhaps assumes a certain time of optimism that you could actually answer it. And if you were to be able to answer it, you would have to kind of get an objective perspective on, on how to answer that question. Otherwise, the question is not being answered. And I think there is, there's actually a beauty also in our understanding of the self, because I, I think the self cannot be objectively answered. You, you cannot have an objective description of 
with itself is you would always reduce it to some sort of determinism, some sort of uh, machine. So, I mean, you, you know the, the great work of, of Martin Buber, Ich, ich und Du, I think it, it, uh, it really answers or it's a pathway to, towards answering this question where you have kind of this dichotomy between the Ich und S, uh, Ich and S, and then the Ich and You. So the S is, is kind of this objective description, right, of, of the world. Uh, you are uh, disengaged. Um, you you try to uh, not be involved um, with yourself in the assessment of the self, which is an impossibility. Or think about Thomas Nagel and how is it like to be a bat? How, how is it like to be a self? In, in a sense, you, you could have phrased that article different. And and his conclusion is you, you cannot. You can only estimate what this experience of how it is to be a bat or how it is to be a self could be like so but i like a kind of martin buber's approach to the question he's not hiding from the question i think he's facing it but he's he's walking a different route so he kind of reformulates the question through an experience where he says i'm just summarizing here i'm, I'm sure you would do that much better but that it's in the experience of a you in the experience of another person not of a third person an s of a you that actually the i gets activated the i is being recognized it needs a you and we all kind of are ourselves are received in this world already in an environment for you. There was always a mother on, on which breast we hang, or there was somebody who gave us a name, right? Who identified us. Usually, I think the, the first identification, the first identity is always a received identity. So, and so I think in this experience of uh, inter uh, exchanges, uh, li like our conversation, this is something people need in order to come to an awareness of the self. If you want to try to identify who you are, by enclosing you and, and surrounding you just with, with your own thoughts and prayers and books, you, you will probably, most likely, and perhaps guaranteed, not arrive at an awareness of the I, of the self. It's in the exposure to others where you realize who you are. That is, I think, so true. I couldn't agree with more, uh, more with you than what you said, I think, because and you especially made two elements particularly salient. The one is the element of intersubjectivity, which is, of course, the essence of this I and thou relationship that Buber writes about. And as someone has put, there's no layer of the self that is not touched by other human beings. Right? There's no way that I could peel off all these different layers of the onion and arrive at some essential ante that has not been shaped by other people, by being recognized by other people. The idea of recognition, a kind of a idea that we can explore in some other contexts as well, how essential that very is. We are always already in relationships. You can never, ever not be touched by, for the better, for better or for worse, right? Someone has said also that basically the quality of our mental health is determined and defined by the quality of voices that we carry around with us all the time. We are always dialogical human beings. We always carry these Sometimes even long forgotten dialogues, you know, I remember the way I was called when I was a little boy, you know, you are an idiot, you're a cretin, nothing will happen with you. And how these kind of voices have shaped me in, in a negative way. And then I, other voices have shaped me in a positive way. So there's this intersubjective interplay. There's no way of talking about the I, about the self without that givenness. And I think that which leads us to this other element that you are mentioning, this essential thrownness. And this is again, Martin Heidegger, the idea of Geworfenheit. We are already thrown. We are already always in the world, part of these relationships. And, and that is why I think, and I'm wondering what you, what you think about this. You know, sometimes Christians are up in arms because, um, rightly so, because uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's 
particular type of existentialism is very strident and anti-theistic. But they're also up in arms because he has this statement that uh, existence precedes essence. And they know why they're worried, because they are worried, oh, you know, there's no like larger purpose that God has given. But in some ways, in some ways, that is true. There is no, there is no Ante, there's no Oliver, apart from all of this deep embeddedness in intersubjectivity in the world, being in the world, right? You know, yeah, I'm created in the image of God, and that gives me both certain capacities, right? That's what part of the image of God is. You are a self. You have the capacity for intersubjectivity, freedom, responsibility, and then you are put into the world as someone who is called to be a steward. So it gives you identity, gives you a self, gives you an identity. Yeah, that's, that's true. But when you say that Ante is created in the image of God, you've said nothing about my life. You've something, said something very profound about my life. But as to who I actually are, without that embeddedness in intersubjectivity and in the context in, within which I live, you have said nothing about me. I mean, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, Ante, you know, I'm not sure whether I feel that comfortable, actually, with the description of Heidegger, this Geworfensein, or... Uh, or uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialism is in humanism. I think that's how it's translated, uh, where he describes that, like we, we are thrown into battle in a, in a sense. Nobody asks us. We And so I think phenomenolo phenomenologically, the description is correct that we are here. We, we, we were not asked uh, by mommy or daddy or so. Or we, we're just here now, So and we, we need to make a life. But um, you could also describe it with more um, soft language, uh, more welcoming language, actually, um, where that you find in the in the Bible, where you're placed, you're not thrown into a battle, but you're placed in a garden. So, um, and the garden is there actually for self exploration. It's also an educational model, a pedagogical model that comes with it. It's not that our identity now is being formed by our battle in fights and and, and survival, but actually our identity is formed in this welcoming space where you can explore and can um, and can develop your own identity to some extent. So. Uh, if you think about Adam, you know, even the term, the, the name, usually we, we are identified by names, by, by proper names, but, but he doesn't receive a proper name. He, he receives only the, the word, you are a human being, a human being. That's what, what Adam means. And then he's getting all these animals, right, that, that he's supposed to identify again, the kind of way he needs to identify the self of other objects, so to say. And there is not a God who gives him instructions. There's not somebody who says, well, Adam, you know, this is how you do it. So he, at least this is the way how the the picture is painted, so, so to say, in this narrative. Um, Adam is is able, is trusted that he will be able to identify and he will be able to to give proper names. And then the climax, I think, um, is when when you see this Adam figure in, in the end of, of uh, chapter two, not using uh, terms of self-identification, like terms like I, my, and, and these proper uh, personal pronouns or demonstrative pronouns, possessive pronouns, he's, he's not using until he's actually exposed to Eve. At the moment where, where he's exposed to this other human being, to actually a person that has identity, Eve is a proper name. So at that moment, he realizes who he is. He uses that this is my flesh and my bones. And yeah, so I think that you could describe this thrown into the world also in a different way and, and say, well, we are welcomed into this world. We are wanted in this world and we are invited to explore the self. Actually, the fact that you have not arrived at a satisfying definition of who you are as an individual, you as Ante, I am as Oliver, is 
nothing more than again this hand reaching out and say there is more you know there's there's more to explore you are bigger than than the concept of yourself at the, at this moment so i think that that's where, where i would feel a little bit uncomfortable with this existentialist approaches um that we find with with heidegger and so yeah i think you're right i think definitely he, their understanding of thrownness and whatever they mean by this whatever ter- other terms they're using is is situated within a particular metaphysics or rejection of metaphysics, you can put it that way, which certainly in Albert Camus and others is the emphasis on the absurd. There's no meaning, there's no purposiveness. So we utterly have to create ourselves because there's no calling, there's no goal, there's nothing, right? There's You die and that's that's it. And so the myth of Sisyphus, right? The famous that you're pushing the boulder and 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 that is kind of the thrownness and absurdity and and you create meaning simply by insisting on having meaning. And obviously you're right, right? Obviously the Bible presents us with a completely different image, protologically in the sense of the story of creation, of a good God who places us in a home, and on obviously in the story of kind of eschatology, uh, the the ending of the story where the recreation of the home and even elevated to a higher level. But I would I would still say that in the interregnum period, right, in this life, after Eden, east of Eden, if I can put it, I don't think that we can give any account that we cannot talk about identity and all of these callings and capacities and responsibilities that you find in Genesis without invoking the element of tragedy. Let me give an example what I mean by that. Uh, I have a family member who, when his mom was pregnant with him, had a very severe depression. And we know that from neonatal studies and medicine that very early on the fetus identifies with the feelings and emotions of the mother uh, already around month four if not earlier and and when he was born from the very early on he was a very sad always crying child now Perhaps that's not the connection I tend to think there is. So here you have a person who was set into the world from the get-go and shaped because of that experience of his pregnant mother. And I could give countless other experiences, uh, you know, all these, uh, the way that life affects us. And so for me, uh, I am okay with looking for another word, but I wouldn't, wouldn't want to ask to think in these ideolo- idealistic terms about identity, because there is always this element of moral luck, what people refer to moral luck, and you've, I think you've mentioned that already, just how much of who you are, even your inquisitiveness, even your desire to be open to questions, speaks about your personality, speaks about your intellectual capacities, speaks about the privileges you had to actually have a master's in philosophy and be kind of being able to process these things without being negatively affected. And so there are a lot of other elements, perhaps not Geworfenheit, but life embeddedness, both with positive things and with the tragic aspect that fundamentally defines who you are. So I'm okay with that as long as we don't as we keep in mind that it's not simply the fact that we don't know who we are, but that in many ways we don't have a control over who we are in its ultimate sense. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very good that, that, you, that you bring this into, into the conversation. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the will is overestimated uh, also, particularly in this modern modern world where you can self-actualize yourself as if you have control um you 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 can just what, what does nike say just do it right just do it 
so we, we used it as kids kind of as actually as a way to as a way to ridicule somebody just do it because we knew that the person cannot do it so just just do it so kind of a, sarca- a sarcastic use of an advertisement um so some some people can just not do it i can many things i can just not do it so um for for different reasons you know my my parents they were there in the mid 70s they were visiting us this the summer and my mom uh, observing kind of my wife and i are talking uh she she was so glad to see that karen my wife and i we talk a lot you know every evening we kind of talk about how the day went and what was good and what was bad and what are the concerns and, and so on and and once we went on a walk my mom and i uh and she said you know oliver i envy envy you so much because you have this conversational culture at home and i wish i would have that with my husband you know with with your daddy so but he's not a talker we, we cannot easily uh, speak about deep things we can always solve problems and no problem your father's a great great man i mean they, they love each other there's nothing wrong in the marriage but she's feeling this void of conversations so to say and then she said man imagine just your your children amygdala and unity they learn already from small on how conversations go and how to listen and how to respond and man they, they will be so blessed in their lives and then i said mom you know don't have don't have any feelings of insufficiency or, or or guilt because you think you she i think she was kind of suffering from the fact that she wasn't able to give me that type of context of conversational culture and said no you know you're both refugees um she she fled from indonesia my father from communist east germany um they were all in survival mode there's no time for conversation and told her you know we are just lucky i mean you you would re- use the word moral luck uh, for for that we were just lucky that that we have t- we have time we can talk so um and it's a nice way to fill the time but imagine you know we would be somehow finding ourselves in a war everything that this little family culture has developed will be lost and migdalian unity will not be in people who who can easily continue a conversation of of talking so yes i i agree and again i think the will in the modern world is to a great extent overestimated i'm not saying that we don't have a will that we're completely determined but the radius in which our will can operate is quite limited and it doesn't surprise me that also you know the new testament uh, recognizes this particularly the book of john where we have uh, you know sayings like uh, not you chose me but but the father chose you um i have found you before before you found me these are deeply um embedded biblical truths and they they refer to kind of a deeper understanding that namely uh, the self needs to be enticed needs to be seduced so so to say be, before it can make uh, decisions it's not through the eye that that it can simply go out there and say so i'm becoming christian or i'm becoming this or I, i'm doing this i'm marrying that no there are so many other factors yeah but let me I agree yeah let mm. me just kind of balance this not balance it out but kind of add to what you're saying by perhaps briefly summarizing what we have said so far and then coming back to your statement about the gospel of john and some of these things that you've mentioned i think in talking about identity right we mentioned the fact that definitely there is a flux to it there's a changes circumstances we grow with age some certain things become more important uh, less important by virtue of aging and other things so there's always a flux to it circumstances we've also said um, you briefly referenced we haven't really discussed this but that actually we cannot talk about one identity there are multiple identities that we possess that often are connected to a social roles which have their own expectations demands rewards exemplars and obviously we try to bring a cohesion 
to these multiplicities of selves that exist in us. But certainly there is kind of a fragmentation when it comes to that. We talked about this idea of the fact that we are embedded in particular circumstances. I think the story of your parents speaks to that. And another problem that perhaps we have not much talked about, but it's also very interesting, is that identity, the extent to which our identity is actually available to us. I think you have spoken about this unknowability a little bit. Uh, I think that you're absolutely correct. Uh, First of all, generally, I believe that introspection is not the best way to arrive at self-knowledge. I mean, many studies have shown that we actually get a way better feedback of who we are by, no, we get a better sense of who we are by listening to the feedbacks of others than through introspection because introspection gives this illusion of immediacy because of the immediacy gives the illusion of infallibility and that's very often not true so very often in the deepest sense we don't know who we are and this is beautiful poem by Dietrich Bonhoeffer who am I right people say I'm this I'm this I'm open but you know they don't know that I'm like this have my doubts who am I and the end he says well you lord you know I am yours And so this brings us back then to what you're saying, that the biblically most important aspect about our identity is that we are called, we are considered, we are named, we receive a new name, right? We are called children of God. I can still craft my life. I can still make my choices. The language of the Bible is the language of identity that is bestowed, but it is also the language of the need to make decisions. Today, if you hear my voice, today, follow me. And become a different person. Uh, spiritual disciplines. I'm a different person if I don't go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, but go in the evening and get up and then have moments of meditation. I am phenomenologically, I'm a different person if I arrange my life in a different way. So can you then perhaps, as we are slowly wrapping this episode up, can you perhaps tell us a little bit about this notion of identity in, in the Bible that is the sense of us, of something being bestowed upon us? Uh, We are considered, we are named, we are forgiven, we are created, we are redeemed. It is all about God's initiative. It is about, when it comes to identity, the relationship between ontology and phenomenology or or ontology and existence or between grace and our initiative. How do you, as a biblical scholar, how do you bring these things together? Oh, wow. That's a big question. You're just blowing my mind with this task. Um, but l- l- let me let me try to kind of get an angle into this um, by, by using a story, uh, a biblical story, because you wanted to see how, how you can bring this also together from a biblical perspective. So I think, as, as, you re- as you're saying correctly, so there, there is, I think, strong voices in the text that, in the biblical text, that um, make the human mind realize that willpower should be tempered. Uh, that, that should be not overestimated what, what will can do at the same time you have for example judgment right that our deeds will be judged uh, there's a strong sense of responsibility um so that we can respond right we we, we have a say in and we, we we can maneuver through life uh, in one way so how to bring these two things together i think there are two great narratives um that, that could explore that a little bit more um think about uh jacob you know, uh, Jacob, this, uh, he has a brother, Esau, and um, they're always in conflict, and they're part of already a conflict society, a conflicted marriage uh, where different people have different interests. Mom has that interest, daddy has that interest, and so they are basically geworfen, uh, in, in, in a sense, into a conflict that pre-existed already, and it shapes their identity to a great extent because the enmity that is between wife and husband is now becoming the enmity 
between these two uh, brothers. So they adopt something that they didn't choose. And they behave very similar to to their to the, the patterns that are provided to them. And they receive this name, Jacob, like the trickster. Um, but now, uh, as he's going through life, he he is true to this given identity, this projected identity. He's, he's tricksting his way through life. Right? We could now take a perspective on this and say he's predetermined. All his skills he, he learns, all his decisions are in a sense predetermined uh, through the environment he grew up in. But then he founds himself in this, in this battle with God. Now, only the, only the reader will find out that that is actually God who, who, who he's fighting. And at the end of that fight, he gets a new name, uh, Israel. So this fight is for me very interesting because in a one sense, it needs an, en- an enemy, which is God himself, to put into uh, Jacob the desire and the angst to overcome his own identity. But it's Jacob who needs to fight. So he, he, he's not just giving it to him, another determination, so to say. He needs to fight, and it's a long fight. It's completely exhausting him. But at the end of, of this fight, God will say, you are somebody else. So I didn't make you somebody else. You are somebody else. And because you are somebody else, I'm finding a name that phenomenologically fits what you are. Namely, you are somebody who fights God uh, and, and you actually conquer. So that, that, that's one. Of course, from a narrative perspective, it's very clear. Uh, you need both. You need the external input that actually triggers in, in him the will to actually overcome himself. And then they reunite as brothers and they overcome actually their trauma. And in a sense, they overcome family tradition in becoming two brothers who are respecting each other. But another episode is uh, this fight against the Amalekites, um, you know, where you have uh, Joshua fighting the, the Amalekites. And, and the narration goes like this, that uh, Joshua would lose with his soldiers when, when Moses' arms would go down. So if, if Moses' arm, he could fight as much as he wants. But if the arms of Moses go down, he's losing. But when the arms of Moses go up, well, then he's, he's winning. So now the question is, who won over the Amalekites? Was it the, the uplifted arms of Moses or was, was it Joshua? And, and there's uh, two perspectives that the biblical text offers. So Joshua would say, God won, right? Moses says, God won over the Amalekites. And it's obvious why. But God, actually, whenever God refers to that battle, he says, Joshua won. So it needs, it needs this blending of determinant factors as well as will. And I, th- I think this is the, the picture. Of course, it's a naive text. Eh? It's not trying to scientifically dissect what, what are the elements of, of will and what are the elements of determination and stuff like that. It's organically, as you can tell the story, it's perhaps the best way to approach it because it's, uh, it's trying to shy away from, from too much of a scientific objectification, because once we would do that, we might lose actually the magic of, of the will and the magic of the one who encounters you. Okay, now I have to process everything you said, but this is so beautiful, and I think it's great for us to, to end here, because I think it brings out, uh, end our episode here, because I think it brings out something that was the undercurrent of what we have discussed, like that finitude, human finitude and human fallibility does not imply fatalism. Did you see how I used three words beginning with F? I think I'm actually proud of myself. <laughs> so finitude. You're such a poet. <laughs> so, so, so finitude, you obviously find it. And finitude means we don't know everything about ourselves. We are placed here, all of that. Fallibility or fallenness means there's this aspect of the bent towards evil that is in us or radical evil that is in us that Immanuel Kant writes about in the Bible talks about fallenness. 
And but that doesn't imply fatalism. That doesn't imply that we cannot, we don't have a space for transformation that comes from God's side, it comes from others, that comes to that, and yet also from our own. It does not invalidate the language of responsibility, as you have rightly put. And I, again, this might be a good place for us to end. Uh, certainly, there are many, many aspects of this topic that we have not touched upon, but there are many more episodes to be made. So we will return to these questions in one way or another. But perhaps we can end here. Oliver, what do you think? Might this be a good place for us to stop here? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good uh, place to have a pit stop. Uh, and then perhaps next time we'll continue the conversation. Yeah, and it's, hopefully uh, if, if we, what we are planning perhaps to continuing this because we try to pick up on the question of the adjective existential and existentialism and all of that since this is something that we keep referring both when it comes to figuring life out and the way we are teaching and that we would like to preach but what do we actually mean by that term so and it might again piggyback on what we have discussed today hopefully so yeah we will also take a credit we will also take a critical perspective in some of the next episodes on why might there be actually an obsession right with the search for the self uh, who, who am i and develop a critical perspective uh, on it too oh definitely you know? yeah, that's one thing that um, i wanted to come to that we look at why are people so obsessed with this question of identity and self excellent yeah well you know perhaps one way to let ourselves go and and let our listeners go into this new week I'm thinking that this mystery that is connected to to the I, to who I am, this this vagueness that I'm not able to grasp fully, is also not just a sign for my finitude, it's also a door towards eternity. So in the sense that the self can never be exploited, it hasn't limits. Of course, that's one reason why, why Feuerbach would argue, you know, we, we do theology is kind of a projection of the self onto a bigger mystery so that we can objectify that. But uh, there is some truth to it. Uh, and I think the Lord, uh, speaking now as a Christian, is really inviting you to to not give up uh, the search for the self, because that search that we all have, there, there's nobody uh, out there who doesn't have it, and it doesn't matter, you know, what faith commitments you're making, what ideological positions you're having, but everybody is enticed by the search for the self. And and the self is always bigger than what you th- think it is at this moment, because it wants to be ex- exposed to more experience, to more time, to another tomorrow, to another person, so that it can be triggered, so that, that it can be activated, that, that new ways of being you uh, will be found. So yeah, I think that this is something that we both uh, would, I think, embrace and with which we would like to let each other go. And, and you as, as a listener, if you're troubled by yourself, this is just a sign that you need a tomorrow, that, that you need a future, that you have a future because there's so much more in the self. That's just what you think it is. A beautiful coda to this conversation. Oliver, thank you so much. Until next time. All the best. All the best. Until then. Uh,